0: Welcome to Pound the Rock, The Score's NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and joining me after our own All-Star break, an extended All-Star hiatus, is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash.
1: Wolfond, I can say I'm a little disappointed that, you know, uh, there's listeners out there that clearly know me better than you do, because for the last week, I've had listeners reaching out on social media, tagging me in comments on Instagram replying to me on twitter i've seen you all much appreciated you know offering me condolences on the end of the the poku era in oklahoma city and i have not heard one mention of condolence from you i haven't heard a- i tried to tell you cash i tried to talk you out of this
0: fanciful notion years ago and you refused to listen to reason so i've got no apologies for you you dug your own grave and by the way He's been scooped up by the Hornets, where I think he's actually going to play. So if anything, I should be offering congratulations to you and the rest of the Poku-believing contingent out there who are finally going to get a chance to see. Because I actually did think last season before, I think he got injured after like the first month or two of the year, and then the Thunder kind of took off, and he never made his way back into the rotation. But I did think before then that he was actually making some strides on both ends of the floor. So I'm not totally closing the door on him as a NBA rotation player. And I think in Charlotte, we will get a chance to see whether that can come to fruition, where that was clearly not going to happen in OKC. So I think this is a good thing. I don't think any condolences are in order.
1: Yeah, Uh, he did. He was a DNP CD in his first game as a Hornet. Uh, But yeah, he had he had that good like month-ish stretch two seasons ago in the second half of the season and then early last season. And those were basically the two flashes. But uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think he'll get more of, I mean, he'll definitely get more or have more of an opportunity to show out in Charlotte than he ever would have in OKC. But uh, well, we'll see if he makes something out of that opportunity. We are not going to talk about Alexei Pokoshevsky today. What are we going to talk about, Wolf?
0: So I wanted to talk about some teams that are still confusing me in the NBA. And in thinking about this, I realized that we'd already talked about the most confusing teams in the league, but that was quite early in the year. Might have been like a month into the season or something like that. So I guess I figured we could go back, revisit the teams that we talked about on that episode, decide whether any of them have figured themselves out to the point that we're no longer confused about what they are, And then see if there are any teams that we maybe wanted to add to that list. Because we're now a little over two-thirds of the way through the regular season. And at this point, it feels like most of the teams and their identities and their strengths and weaknesses have basically calcified or started to. And I think I am most interested in the teams where it doesn't feel so settled. And there are still all these questions that I have about what they're going to look like the rest of this season into the playoffs and beyond. And um, I wanted to just get into talking about all that. And I do think there are are some teams that we did talk about on that previous episode that are still confusing for one reason or another. So I'll let you know, these are the teams that we mentioned on that episode as being the most confusing to us. And we can decide which among them are still confusing, which have figured themselves out and who we need to add to this list based on uh, the last two or three months of NBA play. So. On that episode, we talked about the Bucks, the Clippers, the Lakers, the Pelicans, the Cavs, the Warriors, the Spurs, and the Hawks. So who among that group, to you, has figured themselves out and is no longer confusing and we can just kind of skate past and don't need to delve too deep into them?
1: It's got to be the Clippers, right? If, we, if we're picking one in terms of a team that, especially post-Harden trade, after the early struggles after that trade, they have really found an identity, I think, on both ends of the court. And even offensively when it comes to Harden, like if there were any concerns about how he might upend that offense, I think they've been silenced by the positives that a lot of people originally saw, including Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, who you know for so long reportedly... We're asking for a kind of table setter, right? And hmm. I know I was critical of it for a while, saying, like, I, I didn't think they needed it. I didn't think they needed someone to take, like, start a possession with the ball in their hands. And uh, James Harden has proven, actually, that Paul Jordan Koi probably knew what they were talking about in wanting a guy to at least put them in the right spots, um, handle the load of, like, the early possessions, if that makes sense. And I think just in general, um, it's worked pretty swimmingly for them even like russ off the bench till recently (laughs) yeah exactly it's fallen off but for the for the most part i'd say for more than half of this season so far i think he's been a positive off their bench and has like brought them a bit of a different look off the bench um and it's just all and obviously Kawhi being healthy like you add it all up i just i'm not confused by this team the way i was months ago or even Uh shortly after the james harden trade i think they are a very good team, a contender, if healthy, and a team that knows who they are and what they want to do on both ends. So yeah, I, I guess
0: my I feel mostly the same way that you do. I'm not overreacting to this recent rough patch that they've hit, but it does bear mentioning that they're three and five in their last eight, and in that stretch, they have gotten shellacked by the pelicans, shellacked by the Timberwolves, shellacked by the Thunder, shellacked by the Kings, and then blow a 21-point fourth-quarter lead to the Lakers a couple nights ago. The last two games they lost have been without Paul George, uh, and then last night against the Lakers, they didn't have Zubach either. So, I mean, even the fact that they had a 21-point lead in the fourth quarter in that game is pretty impressive. When LeBron James
1: outscored them single-handedly in that fourth quarter?
0: Yeah, and I mean... I guess I was thinking maybe we could use that as a bit of a jumping off point to talk about them and the Lakers. Not that we want to look at both of these teams entirely through that lens, but I did think there were some interesting things that we could hit on. But I guess, look, I Harden is in a bit of a slump. Russ is in a big slump, especially in terms of like finishing at the rim. He's just been a disaster as a finisher, especially lately. And... I don't know, I, I feel like a lot of the positive signs we saw from him in terms of like fitting into his role early in the year where he was setting a lot of screens and yeah. cutting off ball and playing like really handsy daughter, aggressive yeah. defense. Like a lot of that's fallen by the wayside recently. And I don't want to like shunt all that stuff aside. Um, But I also think end of the day, I still feel pretty confident that this is like a contending team that when push comes to shove, like they're, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with, but they got to get PG back obviously. And I, I don't know. I guess the big question to me, because it feels like Kawhi has been slowing down a little bit in these games. And I wonder how much of that is the accumulated wear and tear of this season, how many games he's played compared to recent seasons and how much of it is just him buckling a little bit under the load that he's carrying without PG and with Harden struggling the way that he is. But That's, uh, yeah, I I don't really feel like they're uh, a confusing team to me on the whole. But I do think, like, if we look at it just through the prism of that fourth quarter against the Lakers, there were a lot of old bad habits that crept in where I'm like, ah, have they shaken off all of this stuff, all these demons, in the way that maybe it looked like they had when they hit that really hot stretch in December and January?
1: Yeah, they had some rough offensive possessions. A lot of indecision within those possessions and some of the turnovers they committed in that fourth, like completely unforced. You know, I'm not taking anything away from the Lakers like to come back from 21 down in the fourth quarter against a great team is, you know, all the credit to them. But the Clippers shot themselves in the foot plenty in that quarter. Like some of those unforced turnovers were like, I was like, did they get drunk in the huddle between the third and the fourth quarter? Like they looked like a completely different team. Yeah. And again,
0: so like not having Paul George or Zubac there, who I think is an underrated component of their offense, obviously makes a difference. But yeah, like that was an offensive disaster class. And it starts with opening the quarter with Russ, PG and Plumlee all on the court together, which we haven't seen a lot of PJ Tucker, barely any of him really, since uh, the Clippers kind of figured themselves out a couple of months ago. But I remember talking about this at that time when we were confused about them in the first place, about it's clear you can't play Russ and PG and a traditional center at the same time. They can't score at all in those alignments. And that was very much the case in starting that fourth quarter. They like, there's been a lot of discourse about how they played defensively at the end of that game with the soft switching against LeBron. And if you want to talk about that, we can talk about it. I think there's some interesting things to mind from that, but really I thought they lost that game at the offensive end yeah. of the floor. And, Between that stretch with like those three guys on the floor crippling their offense. And then just like, again, reverting to these bad habits where they have actions developing very lazily, getting started with like 12 on the shot clock, jogging through them at like three quarters speed, and then just having to like heave up a contested look with like two on the clock. I just, I don't know, that that left a bad taste in my mouth, even though I can recognize that on the whole, this team is probably going to be fine.
1: Yeah, Vincent Goodwill had a great tweet um, during that fourth quarter at one point, where he kind of like listed a bunch of their recent possessions and how it had gotten to close game, and then he put like, and then they wonder why we have trust issues, and it's like it's so true, right? Because it's not just about, um, oh well, they're not going to be healthy, or like some lazy narrative of like uh, they've never won, so they won't. It it's literally like seeing things that have bitten them in the ass before mm-hmm. coming back into play, but by and large. Um, I'm still pretty convinced that this team has figured themselves out in a way where I wouldn't call them a confusing team to me now. Like I, I think they're a very good team that's figured themselves out that just hasn't played the best basketball the last week or so.
0: Yeah. I just wanted to talk about the soft switching thing for like a second, because philosophically, I think it's interesting in a more macro sense. Cause I, I personally go back and forth on this in my own mind a lot about what the right approach should be. And obviously you have a defender like Kawhi Leonard. In the fourth quarter of a close game, you want him to be the guy defending LeBron James, and you don't necessarily want to just give up auto switches and let LeBron pick whichever matchup he wants to attack. He's going at Norm Powell, he's going at James Harden, he's going at Daniel Tyson, he's getting that switch whenever he wants it. I I see and then like they're they're doing like the switch and double thing, which we see a lot of teams now doing. Uh, And the Lakers had really good counters for that. I thought just like having D'Angelo Russell basically like flash to the nail and getting open looks like whether it's off of cuts or kicks to three point shooters out of that. I thought that was really nicely executed by the Lakers. But I don't know. I I think Steve Jones Jr. has made this point where it's like, if you just decide everything is an auto switch, that's what we're doing you are much less likely to have a coverage breakdown as opposed to like, well, make a read, decide who the personnel is and like on your feet, decide whether you're going to switch or not. Communication has to be on point. Recognition has to be on point. It's if you can execute it a better way to play defense, but it's a lot harder to do and you're more likely to have those coverage breakdowns. And then it's also just like, I think about this when I'm watching Miami a lot where they will really tie themselves into a pretzel trying to keep tyler hero out of bad matchups and they can be successful in that but it's hard work and it can burn them at times too and sometimes i'm like i don't know maybe just give that switch and then shade help behind it or bring that that double after the switch like I, i'm not necessarily convinced that there is like a right or wrong answer to that and i just think with the way lebron was going especially the way that he was shooting the ball in that fourth quarter i don't know that they're is anything they could have done to like avoid their fate. And again, I feel like they lost the game on offense more than on defense, but I think there are definitely like convincing arguments in either direction about what the right defensive approach is when you're in a
1: situation where like the opposing team is going to go match up hunt, uh mismatch hunting. I mean, on one hand you could say, well, it's, it's maybe better to iron those kinks out in a mark or February loss and, and hope that it's remedied by the time the playoffs come around. At the same time, I also think, like, not to bail Tyloo and the Clippers out here, but at some point, I do think sometimes there are no right answers for you know a player of not even just of LeBron's magnitude, but a, a superstar type offensive player that is going to be mismatch hunting when there are mismatches to be found on the floor. Like sometimes I just think there aren't answers, and 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 we can um, you know quibble with a coach or a team's decisions and how they even try to approach it, but. Yeah, you know. well, because ordinarily I would be like,
0: I don't know, just go under the screen against LeBron. And, and if he shoot. wants to pull up for a three, that's which a pretty he, good outcome Which he wants for you, to
1: but... do often. <laughs> and he, he hit how many threes exactly. in that fourth quarter? Dude, like... I think it, uh, what did they say, it was the first time in how many years that he had hit four or five, I can't remember if it was four or five threes, but in one quarter, it was like the first time he had done that in I don't know how many years. Yeah, and by the way. That was just awesome to watch. Like from the start of that quarter, I don't know. He
0: just had a look in his eyes where he's like, I'm going to take this game over now. And to know that he actually still can do that in some cases, not always, not every night, but like he can still completely take over a game. That was, I thought that was pretty cool. So why don't we use that to pivot to the Lakers? I don't really find them confusing anymore at all. I feel like they just are who they are at this point. By which I mean, like, they've settled into being a pretty good team that is capable of being very good on a given night, but is also still, like, clearly very flawed.
1: And capable of barely beating the Wizards at home on any given night. Yeah,
0: so I didn't watch that game against the Wizards, so I can't speak to what happened in that one, but yeah, like, they're a pretty good but flawed team, and they can hit some high highs, but they can also hit some low lows, and I think on the whole, they still, as we've talked about before, just don't really have great two-way balance and I don't entirely trust their best offensive lineups to get stops consistently and I don't trust their best defensive lineups to score so that's that's kind of where I'm at with them and I don't you know I I don't think they're really confusing but also if like D'Angelo Russell can keep shooting the ball this way then maybe they can be better more consistently than I'm giving them credit for but I don't know if that amounts to them being confusing I think I have a good sense of what they are
1: yeah we kind of talked about it after the trade deadline too right when I said like I unlike last year where I think there were indicators where it's like okay if you can plug this piece here and and fill this hole like there is something here this year there just really hasn't been any of those indicators I think they've been a pretty mid team that you know has a higher ceiling than most mid teams because they have LeBron James and Anthony Davis but there really hasn't been any sustained stretch of the season where this team looks like a contending level team like they just haven't been that and yeah they're they're a pretty good team with two all-time players still playing at like a top 15 level but they just don't have enough to compete with the big boys in the west and I'm not that confused about it Has, okay, so okay let me let me ask you this though quickly because I know you've often asked me so, during some of Delo's worst stretches, or you know, Mike with Mike Conley's just like steady play, you've often asked me if not regret, but if I've changed my mind on the fact that they should have just traded for Mike Conley at the time. And I've continued to say, even though I like Mike Conley better as like an overall player, like if I was trying to build a team, I'd want Mike Conley. I thought D'Angelo Russell made more sense for what the Lakers needed at that time. And I thought for the most part, that's played out. It, has Delo's recent stretch helped convince no, you of no. that at all? He's
0: having a great stretch. Hats off to him. Uh, No, I think Conley is the guy who would have made more sense for them. Last year and this year. And props to the Timberwolves, by the way, who signed him to what I think is like a great extension. Like, yeah, mutually beneficial. Two years, 21 million. And um, I think that's fair value. And I think that's a great piece of business for the Wolves who were facing a great deal of uncertainty about what was going to happen at the point guard position after this year. So kudos to them for getting that extension done. And that could have been the Lakers locking in that certainty at a very team friendly figure, but instead they're going to go into the off season with a decision to make on D'Angelo Russell, who is capable obviously of going on these types of heaters. But the, the scary thing with Russell is always like, okay, if he's not giving it to you as a scorer, then are you getting enough or is he gonna find himself on the bench again in tight playoff moments because they can't keep him on the floor defensively they can't trust his decision making those are questions that you would never have about Mike Conley even at this stage of his career so yeah no I'm still sticking to my guns on
1: that one just quickly I I'm, we're not confused about the Spurs right <laughs>
0: no I mean I think we were really it was something very specific where we were just confused as to why pops decisions yeah they were you know, going with the point Sohan thing when it was clear that any time that like Wemby played with even a semi-serviceable point guard, like when he played with Trey Jones, they had great success. And now they're starting Trey Jones and like the team's still pretty bad. But as we talked about on a recent episode, in their minutes with those two guys on the floor, they're actually a pretty strong positive. And, you know, I, yeah, I don't think there's any confusion left about them. There is only that burning desire that I continue to have that they make a trade for Trey Young, dude, in
1: the offseason. I think this is a perfect segue to talk about another team that I'm not all that confused about, but was on our original list, and that's the Hawks. So we had that conversation a couple of weeks ago when you brought up the uh, trade to San Antonio dream scenario that I fully have adopted. I can't remember if it was Jake Fisher who tweeted something about like the the Hawks, you know, having exploratory conversations this summer about Trey and John Hollinger wrote this week about like Trey's future and, and potentially the Spurs being in that. And then for unfiltered this week, I mentioned the Spurs at the end in kind of talking about what it could all lead to. But from a Hawks perspective, the you know basis of this unfiltered episode is that I genuinely believe. And I tweeted this last week too, after this Trey injury, that there is like a non-zero chance. Trey young has already played his last game as a Hawk.
0: Hmm.
1: If you just look at it from the perspective of like they announced he was going to be reevaluated in 4 weeks. That's going to bring him to late March. But again, just reevaluated. That's not a return. A team that is clinging to 10th place, a team that was 8 games under 500 before Trey Young went out. A team that by the way controls its own first rounder this year and then doesn't again until 2028. So if there was a season where a team that, you know, had maybe made this win now move a couple of years ago and should be in win-now mode. But if there was a season that team might think it's okay to punt on a lost season, you'd think it would be this year. Like, if Trey's ready to come back, say, like, first week of April, and they have, I don't know, a handful of games left. But they're also, like, you know, barely clinging to the 10th. They're just fighting for that last play-in spot. Again, it's also the last year they actually control their own first for four years. Like, I don't think it's that crazy that they might just hold him out. and so. If that's the case, and I, as we've discussed, as obviously like, you know, plugged in reporters have discussed, if he's might be on the trade market this summer, then I, like, I think it's a reasonable thing to say that he might've played his last game as a Hawk. I know maybe it sounds a little alarmist because they are still technically in a postseason um, season seed. If you want to include the plan in that. And he has a, an all-star in his mid twenties, but like, I don't think it's that far-fetched And then to kind of marry these two teams together, uh, as we've talked about, and now others have jumped on the bandwagon as well. If he's played his last game as a Hawk, or if he's going to play his last games as a Hawk, if and when he returns from this injury, then for the love of God, please, San Antonio, please get this done. Because like, even just from a Spurs perspective, Wemby is so outrageously good already, that even while you know, kind of going through some clunky periods on the offensive end and dealing with the turnovers and and all that comes with that. He's still so good already that, like, he gives them a floor that 19-year-olds should not be able to otherwise give bad teams. And they can be pretty close to very good very quickly. And and Trey would help uh, in that. But one thing I do want to mention, though, not to go too off the rails here, but it's just something i wanted to clear up because a couple weeks ago when we talked about this i had uh talked about how like the the lakers scenario just seemed way too pie in the sky for me cuz they still could only trade i think it was like uh two first or something like that but what i did forget at that time and then in making this week's uh, episode of unfiltered i i realized they actually do have access to three swaps so like once the 2024 draft is over The Lakers could actually put three firsts and three swaps if they, again, not saying they would do that and give up, you know, ownership of six firsts for Trey Young, but I'm just saying they actually are able to put together a much more enticing package with draft capital attached to, say, a guy like Reeves and salary filler than I thought they could. So I just don't want to completely dismiss um, their ability to, you know, potentially be in the trade talks for clutch client Trey Young. Yeah, the last thing we would want to do
0: is undersell the Lakers as a potential star destination Catch, We would never do anything like but that. But I listen,
1: I'm just saying, I think we have the to care be because just don't
0: get enough respect on the Wemby front. I mean, obviously the fact that he goes comes up was it one steal
1: shy of a 5x5 five five? against the Raptors? But then no, he got w- the 5x5 five five last. No, but week. it
0: wasn't against the Raptors. It was it was um it was a different team after oh. the
1: break. Cuz then he got the 5x5 five
0: yeah, he got it the very next night yeah. after coming up one, I think one steel shy. And first of all, obviously that is insane. Um, and he's, he's very much, uh, like he's not even approaching his final form, which is the scary part, but it's like, you are seeing him put all of the pieces together in a way that is rather thrilling. And I did just want to give a quick hat tip to Yusuf Nurkic, who was the, uh, the previous belt holder as having the most recent five by five. And now that uh, that will no longer be the case. I do just want to recognize not only that he had the most recent five by five in the NBA, did it back in 2019, but that in that game, he had 24 points, 23 rebounds, seven assists, five steals and five blocks. Just a ridiculous use of Nurkic game in a season that feels like it's lost to history now. But good Lord, was he good yeah. in 2018-19 before he suffered that traumatic leg injury. And he's still obviously a very productive player. I think he's having a really nice season for Phoenix. But I do think sometimes about what his career might have looked like, what the trajectory of it might have looked like if that injury hadn't happened because he was out of his mind that season.
1: Yeah. It really is a damn shame. Um, With respect to Wemby, I've said it before. I genuinely believe he's going to make five by fives in the same way that like, you know, if you remember back in the day, the concept that any player might actually be able to average a triple double for the season, the way Oscar Robertson did all these years ago. And we, all we did was hear about it. Like we were not obviously old enough to actually witness it. It felt like something like, oh, we'll never see that. It was a different era and the possessions right away. And like, whatever. And then when Russ did it, and then I think he ended up doing it three times in four seasons, Like just the the concept of him having a triple-double at the end of the night and averaging one for the season almost became like normalized because he normalized it after it had been unthinkable for so long. I genuinely believe Wemby's going to do that with five-by-fives. And it's not going to be normalized league-wide. It'll be him. But this thing that used to happen once every few years that I think was as rare, if not rarer, than a perfect game in baseball— could become the kind of thing we hear about like once every two weeks because Wemby does it. And I'm telling you right now, he is going to be the first guy to get a quadruple double since David Robinson in 1994. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know how deep into his career, but it's going to happen. He had a triple double with blocks already. I think that was the game against the Raptors. Yeah. It's going to happen.
0: Yeah. and I So that game against the Raptors where he finished with, I think, 10 blocks. I can't remember who I said this to, but it occurred to me watching that that, I think that his relative lack of like strength and heft right now actually works to his advantage as a shot blocker because guys actually kind of can go into his chest and knock him back a little bit. And I think because if you do that to basically any other big man, you kind of have an open layup that leads guys to believe that they can just go up and score. And also I think there's an element of guys kind of want to challenge him and see if they can get one over on him. So, I mean, maybe they challenge him more than they should anyway, but I think the fact that, like, actually, they can create a little bit of separation when they're going into his body get, allows him to get, like, an additional block a game, at least, I feel like, because they think they have that layup available to them, and then, no, actually, one of his arms just comes <laughs> from out of nowhere and swats the ball away anyway. Um but I just, you think about all this stuff and and about what it's going to look like when he fills out his frame a little bit more. I don't think he's ever going to be a bulky dude, obviously, and nor would you want him to be, but like when he gets a little bit stronger and also, you know, offensively, I think the big, really one of the only big flaws that we've seen from him as a rookie is these turnover issues, which I think will get ironed out, not only as he develops better feel for the game, better ball skills, tightens up his handle a bit, becomes better as a passer, all of which we've seen happen just over the course of this one season, but also just plays with more guys who can create advantages for him. Like, exactly. I, yeah, I mean, it's it's scary to think about how good he can be. So Spurs, not confusing. Wemby, not confusing. He is very much the generational prospect that he was billed as. And he's probably overtaken Chet in the rookie of the oh, year yeah. race. But any, any of these other teams that you feel like have figured themselves out or are the rest of them still kind of confusing to you?
1: I think the rest of them are still kind of confusing to me. I think the closest one to figuring themselves out is... Well, I don't know. The Cavs? I don't know. Have you watched it recently? I
0: have. So yeah, I have have thoughts about that. But
1: who are you going to say? Well, I was going to say, in terms of figuring themselves out, you could argue the recent stretch of play from the Warriors with Clay coming off the bench, Kaminga, you know, a full-time starter, Pods now a starter, and Draymond back. Like, I, I think they have figured themselves out. Now, that doesn't mean they're back to being the Warriors. They're, uh, you know, definite contender. But in terms of just, like, who they are with this current group at this stage of all their careers, I think they have figured themselves out. And what that means going forward, we'll have to see. Not that I have the most faith in them of the remaining teams, it's just if we're talking about a team that has truly figured themselves out Mm -hmm. among the four remaining to talk about, I think it's them.
0: Yeah, I mean, 12-3 and in their last 15 games, obviously they moved Clay to the bench and that now seems to be like a permanent solution because Wiggins is out again for personal reasons, which all the best to him. I don't know what's going on or whether it's related to the personal absence last year, but... Just hoping for the best for Andrew Wiggins. But he's out and Clay is still coming off the bench. So that's telling, right? Like Moses Moody is starting now. It's not like they've reinserted Clay into the starting lineup. They clearly like having him in that bench role and he's played very well in that role. I think that's kind of benefited him, maybe taken a little bit of the pressure off and allowed him to just come into the game and be a gunner. Because I think, you know, to me, the big area where Clay has fallen off is like he's just not at all a threat to put the ball on the floor anymore and that was never really his game like there's what was the stat when he had that 62 point game where he took like 11 dribbles the entire game it's not like he was ever a guy who was deadly putting it on the floor but if he had to attack a closeout sprinkle in a few pick and rolls a game like he could still do that and bring a little bit of dynamism get to the rim from time to time and finish there and like I just don't think there's really any of that there with him anymore, but in a role where he's coming off of the bench and he can just come into the game and like get shots up basically. Like I I don't think he's necessarily playing outside the flow, but I think it's maybe a, like less to think about in terms of like fitting into scheme and figuring out how to get his while playing off of other guys. Like I think it it can be a little bit more natural. Uh, at this stage of his career and with the way that his game now functions for him to come off the bench and do his thing. And I think it's it's looked pretty good.
1: Yep. I think he's so a solid reserve for, you know, the remainder of his career.
0: Yeah. And I think to that point, now that they have figured out a starting lineup that works, you know, Pajemski, he's had three like pretty rough games in a row now. You wonder maybe if he's hitting the rookie wall a little bit, but Kaminga just continues to level up. Uh, like, I, he's playing tremendous basketball right now at both ends of the floor, honestly. And I feel like, you know, Draymond being their full-time starting center now, it looks a little bit different with Kaminga playing the four than with Wiggins, right? Like, it's just, in terms of functional size and athleticism, as a guy you want playing the four in those smaller lineups to give Green a little bit more insulation, I, I, that feels like it works a little bit better to me, and yeah. I think, I, I, you know, on top of what Kaminga's done offensively, I, I've been pretty impressed with how he's played at the defensive end, and I think that's been a big part of making those small lineups work.
1: Yeah, well, you mentioned that twelve and three stretch; it's basically coincided with Kaminga becoming a full time starter and Draymond returning to the starting lineup, both of which happened on January twenty seventh. It's a sixteen game sample now, and they're twelve and four. In that sample, you mentioned Kaminga, 16 game as a full-time starter, averaging just under 19 points while shooting 58% from two-point range, a couple offensive rebounds a game. As this hyper-athletic, hyper-efficient interior scorer, he just gives them, like he gives that offense a wrinkle and a dimension that I don't think they've had. I'm trying to think of like the last time they've had that kind of um, dimension in their offense in this era and I can't really think of it like it just diversifies their offense in a way that they didn't have before and then you mentioned the defense when that starting front court now of Kaminga and Draymond so in the 16 games since uh, Draymond and Kaminga have been starting together on January 27th the Warriors have the third best defense in the league leading up to that game they had the seventh worst defense for the season so they have found something here. 45 lineups league wide have played 145 plus minutes together. The Warriors new starting five, if you include Wiggins in it, it's actually the third best by net rating at plus 21.6 per hundred possessions. Obviously those are still small sample sizes in the grand scheme of things when you talk about like lineup stability. But again, I, I think they have found inadvertently and the way the, kind of the season went, I think they have found the best version of themselves for this particular roster, and now they got Chris Paul back too, who you know it's not going to be like statistically that productive. But if you just look at like even his first game back on the bench, I thought he looked pretty good for a, for a guy his age who had been off as long as he was. Yeah, I also just love
0: watching them fold him into their system. Like obviously there are those minutes when he is playing with like four other bench guys, although we haven't seen a ton of that lately. But early in the season when it would just be. Like the classic Chris Paul pick and roll show, but when he's playing in those mixed groups, like with Steph and Draymond or Steph and Clay on the floor, it's like they'll do the thing—they're running their post split action with Chris Paul as the post trigger, and I just love that. Like I, I think he's actually melded with their system better even than I would have expected, and in terms of like the the bench groups, like they. So for a while, they had Saric playing the five, and now they mostly have him playing the four with Trace Jackson Davis. And with those two guys out there with Chris Paul, great things happen. Like they, I think they're like plus 11 per hundred possessions with those three guys out there. I mean, that was the point I was going to make. Like last year, they had statistically the best starting lineup in basketball with Looney at the five and, um, and Clay in the starting lineup with Wiggins, Draymond, and Steph. And then... This year, that lineup just goes to shit because Looney, Wiggins, Clay, all of them were like a a clear notch below where they were at last season. But last year, it was like they were being carried by their starters and their bench was no good. And this year, now they've sort of like figured out a different starting lineup that works, not to the same level, but that works. And they've got like a really strong bench now. That's, That's sort of the big difference with this team, I think, from like previous iterations. Is like, you look at the guys coming off of their bench and it's like i don't know you you feel pretty good about you know your transitional lineups and also you know the possibly you're not going to see it in the playoffs but like even if they do want to go like five bench guys you can roll out chris paul gary payton ii clay thompson dario Saric, trace jackson davis um you know moses moody who'll be coming off the bench when wiggins is ready to return i imagine um and like sprinkle looney in there as needed because in a a scaled down specialist type of role, he's still been effective. Um, They just have a lot of options. And I think their bench is in a way better spot than it's been in for a while. So I I agree with you that they have mostly figured themselves out. But as we mentioned, I don't know how long ago, but we were talking about, like, (laughs) they probably are just too far behind the eight ball at this point to be considered a serious contender. Because even with where they're at now, they're in 10th and they're
1: only two games back of Sacramento for eighth. Can I just say, I'm not breaking any news here, but how hilarious it is to contrast the fact that five minutes ago when I was talking about the Hawks, how much of a loss yeah. season, they're in 10th and it's like, then we're talking about the Warriors now that how they found themselves and how good they've been recently. And I think they're four or five games over 500. They're also a 10th place team. Like the difference there. And the contrast between the West and the East again is hilarious. Well, it's, it really only is with the nine and t- like,
0: if you look like at, at the, the bottom, eight, yeah. you know, like Miami is the eighth seed in the East and Sacramento is the eighth seed in the West. I don't think you would see too much distinction between those two teams. Or if you did, I think you would say that Miami is probably the stronger team. So yeah. it's really just once you get to the nine, 10 zone that there is that big disparity, but yeah they are only two games behind Sacramento. So it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that they could get themselves up to a place where they would only have to win one play in game to make it to the playoffs proper. Yeah. But as of now, they're in a position where they would have to win two road play in games just to get to the playoffs and then have to go through a gauntlet of teams uh, to make a deep run. So like they probably just have too steep a mountain to climb, but I guess, my question to you would be if they were playing at the level they're playing at now with the lineup combinations they've found and we're sitting at, you know, where the Mavericks are right now in the standings basically would we be talking about them as a legit contender or do you still feel like there are too many question marks
1: There are probably still too many question marks but obviously you'd feel better about them and I mean I'll be honest I I think they I think they might finish 7th man like the way they're playing and this identity they found, they're only about two and a half back of of Dallas. Like, uh, I Dallas would... playing pretty damn
0: well too, though.
1: Yeah, they are.
0: Like that team's yeah. playing pretty
1: well. I think the Warriors end up in that seventy.
0: Okay, because yeah, it's just I mean that's a lot of teams to leapfrog, right? Like you need a couple teams to no, no. struggle down the stretch in order to make that kind of a climb. So.
1: It's only, it's only two games in the loss column. I really don't think it's that tall of a task, given the way they're playing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll see.
0: Like I think, again, like with even with the defense that's been as good as you mentioned, it's been lately. I still... I don't know. I still don't know how much I trust it, given how small they are with a lot of the lineups they put on the floor. But Draymond, even at the stage of his career, is capable of rendering those questions irrelevant. Because he does play like a true big man in so many ways. But I I don't know. I don't know if I entirely trust it. And ultimately, it's still just like they're going to go as far as Steph takes them. So we'll see how far he can take them, I guess. Um, Okay, those are the teams that we were confused about that have figured themselves out. Let's take the break there. And we can come back and we can talk about the teams that are still confusing to us.
1: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet light-hearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show.
0: Okay, Cash. Confusing teams that were confusing then and are confusing now. Where are we starting? Let's go.
1: Alright, we've talked about them a lot recently, especially after the coaching change, but I'm sorry, if we're talking confusing teams, we still got to talk about them again, and that's the Milwaukee Bucks, who, listen, in terms of just, like, wins and losses, they're they're still playing great ball, just like they were before the coaching change, if all you're looking at is wins and losses. But, like, if you want to talk about confusing, so, since Doc took over and, like, was actually on the sidelines as the head coach on January 29th, the Bucks now have a top-five defense. But their offense (laughs) has slid, to middle of the pack. It's 16th. And before they blew out the Hornets last night, that offense was actually, I believe, tied for 19. It was like 19th, 20th during that time. So if you compare that to Adrian Griffin's tenure through January 23rd, when they had the number two offense, but the number 21 defense, it's like, okay, have they fixed one problem and created another? Is it too early to tell? I don't know, but I can still say this team is confusing to me And just in a different way than they were a a month ago. I don't know. How do you see it? Like, from what you've seen in the Doc era so far, is there any reason to actually be concerned about this suddenly middling offense? Or do you think you've got Giannis, you've got Dame, there's no concerns there. The offense will take care of itself. And the only important thing and the only positive thing here is that they seem to have found something on the defensive end.
0: I don't think it's like the offense will take care of itself. I I think we talked about this actually on the episode when Griffin got fired because at that time they were second in offensive efficiency. And I think we were like, you know, yeah, the numbers on paper look good. I wouldn't say they're totally out of the woods offensively. There are still some question marks there, but like they're not as bad offensively as they've been under Doc. And I don't think Doc has done anything to make them a worse offensive team. So yeah, I'm not saying he can just like roll the ball out there and it'll be fine, but I'm not overly concerned about them on the offensive side of the ball. And I'm also not convinced that their defense is just fixed. <laughs> like, yeah. they have these personnel limitations that are going to persist with their guards defending at the point of attack and on the wing. They, they don't have athletic wings. They just don't. And it's, that, uh, it's kind of a problem for them at both ends of the floor. But especially on defense. I will say, okay, so they're 4-0 since the uh, All-Star break after they had that debacle against the Grizzlies going into it. Their wins since then, they beat the Timberwolves. Very impressive win. In Minnesota. In Minnesota. They beat the Embiidless 76ers, which is not that big of an accomplishment, but it was a decisive win. Good for them. And then they stomped the Hornets two games in a row. I th- I think the thing to me is, like, they were pretty clearly looking better. Like, they turned a corner, at least defensively, even before this win streak. That that Grizzlies loss, maybe notwithstanding. But it was kind of the inverse of the don't believe their record talk before Griffin got fired. Where, like, I thought it was pretty silly for people to be clowning Doc when they were 3-7 and seven under him. Because I still saw signs of progress there, and I didn't think there was anything to the fact that their offense had suddenly gone into the tank. And you said like they're I think they're third in defense since Doc formally took over. And some stats to kind of inform that. Uh they're up to fourth in defensive rebound rate, which is something we've talked about all year. Like always a huge strength under Bud, but hadn't been for the first part of the season for a variety of reasons. Some of them coverage related. So they're up to fourth in defensive rebound rate. They're 13th in defensive turnover rate and they were dead last before doc took over and that's a really interesting thing to me because he has kind of you know we saw adrian griffin experimenting with these aggressive coverages early on then he reverts to the more conservative drop system but still sprinkling in kind of some blitzes some switches things like that but they just like weren't resulting in any kind of uptick in turnover rate and Doc is still like, Brooke is is staying in his deep drop, but elsewhere, Doc's kind of brought back a lot more of the switching and some of the hard hedges and things like that, but it is resulting in a lot more turnovers forced, which is obviously a crucial component. If you're going to play an aggressive defense, you want to be forcing turnovers as part of that. Otherwise, you're not getting the benefits and you're just seeing a lot of the downsides. Then this is the biggest one. Third lowest transition frequency. Allowed, which again, they were dead last in the highest transition frequency allowed before Doc took over. So they're like completely punting on the offensive glass in order to uh, prioritize transition D. They were kind of middle of the pack in offensive rebound rate before that. Since then they're twenty seventh. So that's part of it. And you know that, that's interesting to me a little bit. Cause you may remember cash last year, I wrote this whole piece about offensive rebounding and how it was making a comeback. And in that piece, I I swept through the whole cleaning the glass database, 20 years of data, and found zero correlation between offensive rebound rate and transition frequency allowed off of live ball rebounds specifically. And in talking to coaches for that story, a lot of them were like, you know, we actually feel like crashing the offensive glass helps our transition D because opposing teams are like so afraid of us getting second chances that they're actually keeping guys back rather than leaking out. There's an interesting tension and trade-off there, but I guess what we saw for a Bucks team that is getting older, that is not especially athletic outside of Giannis, and that was frankly just having a lot of difficulty organizing itself in defensive transition, it made sense for them to scale that back and to just focus on, on getting back. And they're doing a wonderful job of that since Doc took over. So those are the numbers kind of underpinning their defensive turnaround. And, I think generally in terms of execution, they're doing better. Like when they're when they're like late switching and things like that. I think their guards are doing a way better job, sort of veering back, getting into like the rolling big man's legs, and taking those opportunities away. Scram switching on the backside of that, all that stuff has looked cleaner to me. So, I yeah, I think they deserve credit. I, I still need to see a ton more before I fully believe it, and I'm also as much as i was like let's not pile on doc because the bucks are 3 and 7 since he took over i would also hesitate to like heap all this praise on him for turning this thing around you know like i'm not going to go out and like somebody who will remain nameless did write a piece about how doc rivers has saved the bucks season who did that i said he's going to remain nameless
1: yeah, I know exactly who probably
0: wrote that. Point being, th- yes, there are positive indicators, things they're doing differently, things they're doing better, and the stats have backed it up. But a lot of that has to do with the opponents they've played. And to me, like the biggest reason for their defensive turnaround is that Giannis started playing like Giannis defensively again. Like He looks like the all-defensive guy that he's been in the past, and that's been the biggest factor. Not that these other things don't matter. They absolutely do. But him just getting back up to the level we're accustomed to seeing from him defensively is the biggest factor in them turning this thing around defensively. Not Doc Rivers coming and, like, Galaxy braining this thing and completely reinventing them defensively. Like, there have been some tweaks, but, you know, a lot of the foundational stuff is still kind of the same. And a lot of the limitations and the red flags are still there and... Something that again, we're gonna have to see a lot more of this team succeeding at that end, I think, to believe that they've fully turned it around. That's that's where I'm at with the Bucks.
1: Yeah, no arguments there. A big question I have is it because if you remember on deadline day when we were sitting beside each other working at the score headquarters, we both said, I asked you and you agreed with me that um we actually thought, at least by the time the playoffs roll around or whatever, that Patrick Beverly should probably be starting beside Damian Lillard rather than Malik Beasley. And we also have both said on this podcast this season that Malik Beasley will probably find himself slowly removed from the rotation if the Bucks go deep in the playoffs, like as the playoffs wear on. My question to you is, are we still in agreement that Bees probably needs to be out of the rotation if they make a deep run? Or has he taken his shooting to such a level now where you think it actually negates the defensive concerns that usually sink players like him and literally him last year in the playoffs. He's up to 45% shooting from deep and 54% from the corners.
0: Yeah, I think if he can keep shooting like that, (laughs) then he stays in the starting lineup and he stays in the playoff rotation. But it's like, as we were saying with D'Angelo Russell, his teammate last year who Eventually, both of them found themselves out of the Lakers rotation. Once or if the shooting cools off, are you providing enough to justify staying on the floor? There's something to be said for Beasley. Like, D'Lo does not attract the same level of defensive exactly. attention as a shooter, especially off of movement. And so with Beasley, you could at least make the case that like, even if he is shooting 25% from three... Defenses will still react to him as like a high volume, 40% three point shooter off a movement. And that in itself is going to be enough value to keep him on the floor. But with a player like that, where it's just a little bit one dimensional, that's the worry is like, if you go into a shooting funk, what are you giving your team? And, and so that's, I can't really say because he could keep shooting this well and be a valuable contributor to a deep playoff run. But it's tenuous because i don't think he's bringing enough in other areas to to justify playing a lot if the shooting isn't there to this level. So can we leave the bucks there? We can. Uh okay, so we we hit on the Cavs briefly. I was wondering if you felt like they'd figured themselves out and you said not really or hesitated what what's going on with them? So i just think
1: when I watch them, and when I watch them at full strength, it's like something there's just something clunky about them, if that makes sense. And I thought, you know, like others, like the most fascinating thing about their season is the, I guess, clearest identity they had found, or like the most seamless they looked, and their offense looked especially this season, which coincided with the major, the bulk of this, like they're on a twenty and five run right now, which matches boston for the best record in the league over that stretch and during that time them and the celtics are also the only teams who have been top five on both ends of the court but that oversells it a little in terms of their recent play because they're actually three and four in their last seven with two losses to those and decimated sixers that you talked about earlier um a home loss to the magic and a blown game in chicago that went to overtime Donovan Mitchell has been the best guard in the Eastern Conference this season. And I I say that taking nothing away from Jalen Brunson, but he's been so good and he really, really carried them. And obviously Jared Allen was great too. And they got like shooting from Sam, all nobody star Sam Merrill and all this, like they had other contributions, but like Donovan Mitchell really carried them through that stretch where they played their best basketball of the season with both Darius Garland and Evan Mobley out of the lineup. And they've still played good ball with those guys back and at you know, full strength, but it's been clunkier again since they've got back. And now they've gone through this stretch in the last week and a half, two weeks, that is much more in line with what they looked like earlier in the season when we said that they were one of the most confusing teams. At some point, it's like, I don't know, maybe, maybe they're not quite the team they th- we thought they were for this season. Have you seen anything in the last seven games or when they've been at full strength now after that great one run they went on to make you think, no, this is the team I thought they could be? Uh, I guess not. Like, I think, well, that th-
0: this is the thing. that's You can call it confusing or just intriguing, right? I think more than confused, I am intrigued by how they're going to find the right balance, the right lineup combinations, the right substitution patterns, the right closing groups now that everybody is back healthy. And if I am pointing to something that's confusing to me, it's why has their starting group been so much worse than it was last year, especially offensively, despite that lineup having replaced Isaac Okoro with Max Struess, who, as we've talked about, has been pretty much an ideal fit and has played great despite not shooting the ball all that well by his standards. Yeah. Like, why can that group? Like, last year, that starting lineup with Okoro had like a 124 offensive rating. And this year, with Struess in his place, it's like 115. Part of that to me is like Garland just hasn't been the same guy. And I'm not entirely sure what's going on with him, but he's having a weird season. And then, and like his fit with Mitchell just looks a lot clunkier than it did last year. And the same thing with Allen and Mobley, where like last year, The Cavs were at their best offensively. This might be a surprise to some people, but they were at their best offensively until the playoffs, obviously, when both of those guys were out there together. And this year, they've actually still been better with both of them out there than with Mobley as the lone big man. But by far, their best offensive look has been with Allen as the lone big man on the floor. So I'm still trying to work through why those changes have happened and why it just hasn't looked all that smooth. But... So I guess, yeah, then then you would call that confusion. But in terms of, like, I think I've seen enough to believe that they can be the team that I expected them to be coming into the year. They just have some things to iron out. And ultimately, to me, it might just come down to, like, Garland and Mobley playing better, you know? like I that's, completely agree. It, it's kind of as simple as that. And... I don't know. I just don't know what to make of some of these indicators that I'm seeing with, like, their fully healthy starting group. But on the positive side, if we're looking at, like, their stagger patterns and how they've decided to, like, sub things out, basically where they're tethering Mitchell and Allen together and they're tethering Garland and Mobley together, that's working like gangbusters. Because... With Mitchell and Allen on the floor and Garland and Mobley off, they have a plus 12.1 net rating. And with Garland and Mobley on and Mitchell and Allen off, they have a plus 12.9 net rating. So the fact that they have these two distinct guard-big pairings that they can go to that are basically going to dominate their minutes is a really good thing. It's just when they try to figure out how to put them together at the start of games and at the end of games, even though like recently they've been closing games with Mobley on the bench, which is very interesting. It's when they try to figure out how to put it all together that things get a little bit confounding. Um, So I think that's like, those are the big questions I have is like, we know the talent is here. We know that in the right combinations, the fit is there. It's just kind of figuring out how to arrange those pieces in such a way that the whole can amount to something greater than the sum of its parts.
1: Yeah, and we've we've yet to see that this season. But like to me, I don't know if you feel the same way.
0: I think there have definitely been times where the Mitchell-Garland fit feels as or more problematic to me as the Mobley-Allen fit. No, I agree. Like, something with Garland, he's just... His handle doesn't look as tight. His decision making's been a little bit off. There are so many times when he's like just dribbling to nowhere. And the turnovers we know have been a big issue for him. And like maybe like that to me sometimes feels tied to the the handle just being a little bit looser. He hasn't shot the ball as well as he did last year. And it's like when he was out, I'm obviously not saying they're better without him, but it did clarify things. Because Mitchell was just a full time point guard. Yeah. And there was no jockeying for possession of the ball or trying to figure out what to do when they were away from it. It was just like, Mitchell's the guy. He's going to orchestrate everything. And there was a cleanness to that that I think made the team make a lot more sense for that stretch. And now he's like Garland's back and they're trying to
1: figure it out again. And also, I, I do think there's something to the fact like, listen, Donovan Mitchell was great last year, but he has been on another level this season. And I do yeah. think sometimes there is something to just like the simple fact of like, when a guy is that good offensively at the guard position and he can essentially play, you know, point guard, whatever you want to call it, when you bring another good offensive player back and the ball is in that other player's hands now just less often, I think you take away from the offense and that doesn't even have to be a negative on Garland's part, although this season it has been. Like, as you mentioned, he hasn't been quite as good. But for the most part, if you brought any good offensive player into this mix, but it meant taking the ball even just a little bit, out of Spida's hands, given the level he's played at this season, I think that, you know, takes away from an offense. Yeah, but the reason that doesn't entirely hold water for me is
0: Mitchell's a really good off-ball player. He is. And again, I think we saw him and Garland play very effectively off of each other last year. It's just for some reason that balance is off this year. Like, they've lost the synergy they had, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, I'm not entirely sure why it's been so much less smooth. And I mean, like there are instances like that Dallas game, right? Which they did close with uh, Struess at the four and Levert on the floor in Mobley's place. Where with the added spacing of having Allen be the lone big man out there, actually they were starting to have some some connective synergy there. Like there, there are times when it can work and maybe it is just a question of opening the floor for them a bit more. But like, I don't know. It, that's that's the thing that's leaving me with, with like still a bit of confusion and it's all offensive. Like defensively, I have no confusion. Like this is an amazing defensive team. Yeah. And that's what I feel like is important to point out. Like that defensive baseline gives them a very high floor as a team where it now just becomes a question of how good can they be? How consistently can they perform at this level offensively? And, and I think there's something to be said for like having those questions answered at one end of the floor because, I don't know, it's like the, then it's just like the, the question becomes their ceiling, right? Like we know where their floor is at. Their ceiling will be determined by how many of these offensive questions they can answer. And to that point, I think Mobley obviously is what he is. We know he's a spectacular defender, but Jared Allen, man, like I think he's got a real case to be on some defensive player of the year ballots this year. Like... He's not going to win. I think Gobert is going to win it probably in a landslide. But, like, if you're filling out a three-person ballot, probably Anthony Davis is on there. And then I think you could make a case for, like, Herb Jones. Yeah, You could probably... It's actually, like... Interestingly, this year, I feel like there are a lot more guards and wings in that mix than there are typically when it's, like, just dominated by big men. But, like, Suggs, Caruso, Herb Jones, White Holiday, like... Any of those guys could be on about, but Jared Allen is right there. I yep. think with that next crop of people like bam out of bio, et cetera, he's been so good defensively and so much more coverage versatile. I think than he gets credit for like to the point about the Dallas game. He was switching every single ball screen onto Luca. Like he did not drop. I don't think a single time that entire game, there might've been a couple where he was like soft hedge, shallow drop kind of thing or like catch hedges as some people call them but like mostly it was just like straight up switching and Luca was unconscious that game cooked everybody Jared Allen was by far the best Cavaliers defender of Luka Doncic in that game yeah. and like he's a, he's a very capable switch defender he can play the hedge and recover game if that's what they want him to do he's really effective in drop i mean he's been he's been tremendous in all facets at that end of the floor
1: yeah, and his synergy with Donovan Mitchell in that awesome stretch of ball, the Cavs, that was like, it was really eye-opening, man. Like, I, I was watching that team through that stretch thinking like, man, Mitchell and Allen, like, if you had kind of like a, a star forward in the middle of that pairing, it would be so perfect. Obviously, Garland and, and Mobley, for all the skills that they bring. I don't know, just, I, it's just a fit issue with their talent like the talent is there among the four of them it's just as you mentioned it's that fit issue it's making all four work together and I don't know maybe maybe they just can't also Max Struess doesn't hit that three-quarter shot to beat the Mavs we're talking about a team that's actually two and five over their last seven and as I sit here scratching my head I mean it's confusion is the perfect word like
0: yeah okay so that's the Cavs who else do we have on Pelicans this list? Confusing only, teams, still
1: confusing. Pelicans. I think the only team yes. we haven't talked about are the Pelicans.
0: Yeah. And I, I had one team that I wanted to add to this list that's become very confusing to me.
1: But let's talk quickly about the Pels. What's confusing to you about them? Where to start? Yeah, well <laughs> listen, if you look at the numbers, 35 and 25, clinging to a top six seed, um, sixth ranked defense. 13th on offense, but there was a time when they were actually one of only two teams in the West, top 10 on both ends. They have a top five overall net rating, you know, like healthy and based on the numbers and and the record, like they, they look like a contender. Zion has only missed 11 games. Like for him, only 11 games through 60. That's a big accomplishment. Ingram's only missed six. McCollum's missed 16. He's had his own injury. But like for the most part, I think they've been relatively healthy the underlying numbers are really good. And yet, as we've discussed off air, there's just like so, something about this team that doesn't allow me to buy it. And maybe it's because, as I mentioned on the uh, pod earlier this season, every time I start to believe in them, like they lay an egg or they go through a week that just like absolutely confounds me or frustrates me. But the the underlying numbers and the record and, and you know the things that you can go by at this stage of the season through three quarters of a season. They seem to fit the bill of a contender. But why aren't they? Because I don't think either one of us truly believes they are. Yeah, it's just a feeling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to justify my confusion because there's yeah. not actually much I can point to and be like, here is why. They're not well, really this. Okay. Case. No,
0: I, I think I can. I think I can boil it down to Something similar that I said about the Lakers, which is just that I don't entirely trust their ability to put together good two-way lineups. Even though they have, even though they're, like you said, 13th on offense, 6th on defense, tied for 5th in net rating in the league, It just that just doesn't feel sustainable. And they are getting by on like fairly fortunate opponent three-point shooting luck, where especially given the way that they play defense which is like very geared toward packing the paint to do like rim protection by committee because individually they don't have many good rim protectors. And the fact that, I mean, so like maybe there's a method to that in that like if that is your strategy, then ultimately you are going to maybe force opponents to shoot more threes than they're comfortable with and funnel the ball to some not so great shooters. Maybe there's something to that because they did this last year too. So when a team is able to do that two years in a row, like we can talk about this with Sacramento because they've had the opposite problem. They're getting lit up from three for the second year in a row. And so when you see that and it starts to feel like maybe a trend, then you can start to ask whether there's something more than just luck at play with opponent three-point shooting. But I don't think to the extent that the Pelicans have done it is like entirely intentional or skill-based. And I especially think about one of the big points of confusion for me the Zion up center lineups. They've only played about 200 minutes this year, but it's still wild to me that they have been below average offensively and like 95th percentile defensively. Cuz I watch those lineups and it's like they can't stop anybody at the rim and they can't get a defensive rebound. And then like you look at the numbers and that's that's true, but Uh, opponents are shooting 28% from three against those groups. So like that kind of explains that, but then why aren't they better offensively? And why are the Pelicans still quite bad overall with all three of Zion, Ingram and McCollum on the floor together? Whereas like take two of those guys and put them together, like McCollum and Ingram with no Zion. They're like plus eight per hundred Zion and Ingram with no McCollum. They're plus 11 per hundred. So like, Why can't the three of them together make it fit, especially with the way that CJ is playing this year, where I feel like he's actually figured out what his role should be, playing more off ball, getting a ton of threes up, shooting them exceptionally well. I I just, I don't know. I can't fully figure it. And then how much of this just comes down to Zion not looking entirely like the physical force that he's been when healthy in previous years. Like to me, that's a big part of it. Because not that, like, they've gotten to ideal spacing around him, but this is the best supporting cast that he's had, especially in terms of their ability to space. They're actually, percentage-wise, one of the best three-point shooting teams in the league. I think they're seventh, uh, shooting 38% from deep and actually, like, creeping up in three-point volume to, like, I think they're 23rd now. But he isn't really taking advantage of of that extra spacing in the way that you might have expected him to, or the way that he would have if he was at the athletic level that we saw him play at um, in previous years. Cause it, he just hasn't quite had that same pop to me. And maybe that's why I come away feeling underwhelmed and not convinced, that this is actually the contender that their overlying numbers suggest they might be.
1: Well, and the numbers sort of bear that out for Zion too, right? Like, look, he's averaging 22, 5, and 5. It's been fine. But if you look at the efficiency, like, you know, just a hair under 58% from the field sounds great. But if you actually compare it to the rest of his career, like his effective field goal percentage is 2.0%. He doesn't really shoot threes. But the percentages have actually come down. Like, he used to be uber efficient. Now he's just really efficient. There has been... um something there where you can see the efficiency dwindle a bit the scoring itself is down like this is a guy that through his first few seasons was literally one of the most efficient scorers of all time in a small sample but that's where like yeah he's been good this season and the numbers bear that out but they also bear out that he hasn't been quite as good in, as in the past when healthy and not nearly as efficient
0: yeah he's not getting to the rim as often he's not finishing quite as well at the rim and I think there are areas where he has improved. Like, I think he's a better ball handler. I think he's a much better passer, actually, than he was when he came into the league. Five times a So, game. you know, there, there are things to be encouraged about with his progress. And just the fact that he has played all but 11 games is a huge plus, obviously, for New Orleans. But, I, I, yeah, and I guess I wonder then about about that. Like, how much of this perceived athletic decline is a result of him maybe pacing himself or deliberately playing a lower impact style. So as not to suffer another injury. And if that's the case, if he has to play a lower impact style for the rest of his career, I mean, that's a worthwhile trade-off if it means he's going to be on the floor, obviously, but then do we have to reassess our conception of like how high he can climb and how high the Pelicans can go with him? You know, for sure you do. Um, so there's all that kind of rattling around in my head. But I did just want to take the opportunity to give Herb Jones his flowers because the Pels being sixth in defense doesn't make sense given like the rest of their personnel. And it's probably probably true talent level aren't the sixth best defense in the league. But Herb Jones is a freak. Like all world defense and the biggest reason they have maintained this top 10 mark for most I, of the year on that side of the ball. I have him
1: third on my ballot.
0: Yeah. I think that's like, he absolutely belongs on defensive player of the year ballots like surefire all defense guy to me, Better be. The end of the season. <laughs> but also shooting 43% from deep, not on huge volume, but like three and a half attempts per game, not nothing and 58% inside the arc. And with the shooting improvement, I think has come an increased ability but also like increased opportunity to attack closeouts, put the ball on the floor. His finishing has improved. He's been amazing in the open floor. 65% true shooting cash.
1: Like for a defensive specialist, that ain't bad. No, he's been tremendous. He's been tremendous. Like the ultimate 3 and D glue guy type of player this season and yeah. the, the type of guy you need if if you are a contender or you want to be the absolute type of player you need in the playoffs to a throw at you know those star those big star forwards perimeter players in the playoffs um but also got a guy who knows what he is and what he isn't like just the perfect role player but an absolute star within that role and one who yeah like you talked about no brainer all defensive team like i think he should be a no-brainer all defense first team yeah agreed um but overall if
0: we're like boiling it down to why don't we actually trust this team when the numbers say that maybe we should i think it's that i think it's i i I don't think their defense feels real and come playoff time i just think zion is going to get hunted to death and they still haven't figured out a, a ball screen coverage that works for him not like I don't want to put it on them like they haven't figured it out. I don't think there is a ball screen coverage that works for him. Switches, he's liable to get cooked by any quick guard. Drop coverage, forget about it. Hedges, he might be the worst hedge defender in the entire NBA. I think he's made real strides as an off-ball defender, especially as a low man. But like, ball screen coverage, disaster. And... That worries me a lot, especially given that Herb is basically the only guy in the starting lineup that can actually insulate him. They have good defenders off of the bench, but I don't know. That's that's the aspect of this that I don't trust and probably the biggest reason that I don't believe that they can actually be a contender. Especially because it's not like they're scoring like gangbusters either, right? Where it's like, okay, maybe they won't be as strong defensively in the playoffs, but teams are going to have a hard time stopping them. That hasn't really been the case either. They're like middle of the pack offensively.
1: All right, who's uh who's the team that we didn't have on our original list that you want to throw out there?
0: I wanted to talk about the Kings, but we're already pretty deep into this, so maybe we just save that for another episode. Um I'm writing about them now, so I'll get my thoughts about them out in that forum. I just it's another one of these teams where I just like don't really know what they are, like this should be a really feel good season from them, right? They had this huge breakthrough last year and their 17-year playoff drought. Have a great first-round series against the Warriors. They're like the toast of the NBA. And this season, despite the fact that they are, what are they, 33 and 25, they're a game out of fifth or a game and a half out of fifth in the West. They're ostensibly backing up what they did last year and they should be praised for that. And they've improved defensively in ways, again, that I don't want to get into now, but we can talk about on a later episode. Really meaningful defensive improvements, especially from Keegan Murray. Their offense has fallen from 1st to 14th. And I can't entirely figure out why that is. But it has led to them, despite being, as we said, 33 and 25, solidly above 500, like they're barely above water in terms of their net rating. And uh, I think they're 17th in the league at what are they at point 0.3 net rating 17th in the league um, because their offense just isn't as potent as it was last year. And aesthetically it looks more or less the same, but one thing is I think teams have been, and I mentioned this coming into the year, how a lot of the times there are like diminishing returns when a team kind of comes out of nowhere, catches the league flat footed with a different style of play The Kings playing this free flowing motion offense and also playing with ridiculous pace. If teams are more prepared for that, then, you know, if you're not kind of ready to change things up with your personnel or with your style, then you might have diminishing returns. I feel like that's happened to a certain extent, especially with the pace, because their transition frequency is down, transition efficiency is down, and that's a big part of it. But it's not all of it because they're also way down in the half court. But I do think one stat I I flagged is like they're number one in defensive rebound rate. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that they were a strong defensive rebounding team last year too, but I think they were seventh or eighth, not number one. I think that teams are being more deliberate about punting the offensive glass against them in order to get back and slow down their transition attack. And I don't think they fully adjusted to that, but like, You could also say that's a benefit, right? Like the fact that your threat, the threat of your open court attack is that dangerous that it helps you have the number one, uh, you know, defensive rebounding rate in the league is like a plus. But the fact that their half court offensive rating has come down as much as it has as well has made that kind of problematic. And I'm, I'm just like having a hard time figuring out why that is because Fox and Sabonis have been pretty much as good as they were last year. Awesome. So I don't know, do you have any insights on on the Kings,
1: why they've experienced this downturn? The one thing I'll push back on is how you opened this little soliloquy on the Kings when you said that you thought it, like it should have been a feel-good year, right? It had all the makings of a feel-good year. That's what I want to push back on because I think it actually had all the makings of a disappointing year from this perspective, not from the record or whether they make the playoffs or not, which I said at the beginning of the year, I still thought they were a playoff team. But I think when you have the feel-good year they had last year, When they finally break through, they end with what was the longest playoff drought in NBA history. They have a really competitive first round series against what at that point was the defending champions. And then you come into this year, there is not really room for improvement. Like when you, if you looked at this realistically, and what I mean by that is like, they were a top four seed. I think they finished third last year, but they were a top four seed who went to game seven of the first round with all the magic that went into last year, for them to have an equally feel-good year this year, they would have had to take some sort of step, and that would have meant either having an even better regular season and maybe being like a top-two seed, or it would mean having to go further in the playoffs, which means winning around. And I don't think either one of us, or anyone who pays attention to the NBA and follows it closely, would have come into this year and said, if we're talking the playoffs... And like being playoff proof, this is one of the four best teams in the Western Conference. And no, so, okay. so, sorry, I, I
0: agree with all that. And you may recall, I said all of this coming into yeah, the year where yeah, I thought they were, right. due, they were due for a come down. What I, what I mean, and first of all, the West has gotten a lot better around yeah. them. That's a big part of this, right? What I mean is not coming into this year, like it being set up to be a feel good season. I more just mean... Being at this point of the season and being thirty three and twenty five, oh, yeah. firmly in the playoff mix, should be a really feel good story. It's like, oh, it wasn't just a one hit wonder. Right. This is actually still a good team that is after ending its drought, positioned to go back to the postseason again. So that's what I mean. Not not like I understand all the factors and the reasons that it hasn't felt as galvanizing as last year felt, and it never was going to. They were due for a come down for sure emotionally statistically, et cetera. But that's, I, I just think the fact that they are 33 and 25 and it's felt very ho-hum is interesting to me. And I think it's because yeah. of all these underlying concerns that I'm laying out.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I just think, and I, like I've said it before with other teams, I think the, the shift from like, this is great, we're a playoff team, this is so exciting, to, ah, we're just a playoff team. Happens very quickly for fans, right? And that uh, you know, doesn't mean you can't enjoy it, but it's just, we see it all the time with different teams. And it's like those feel good, happy to be here vibes. They don't last long. Often they last a year, maybe two. And uh, expectations change fast. Exactly. And that's what Kings fans are going through now. And again, that doesn't mean that with Fox and Sabonis, they are long-term, that they can't get to that next level in the coming years. I just think for right now, they can't. They're not capable of it this year. And... That's probably a disappointment on some level for Kings fans, but I really don't think it should be if they look at this realistically.
0: No, and like they're a young team and it's not like they need to take that next step right now. Exactly, You know, and I've talked about, yes, I was frustrated that they basically punted their cap space in the summer and that they didn't make a move at the deadline while acknowledging that maybe the right move wasn't out there for them. And they can afford to wait until that right move does become available. But it's also easy to look back and be like, did you really need to give Harrison Barnes three years and $54 million? Like, was that the best use of your financial flexibility? That looked bad to me at the time and looks worse now because he is in decline. He, I, I know he's still shooting the ball well, like still an efficient scorer, but he just isn't the answer at the four in my mind. And like, the sooner they can get that position sorted out, the better. And I think that contract now is going to be really tough to move. You know, the renegotiation and extension with Sabonis is fine, like good to get him locked in. Bringing Vizenkov over from Greece, like uh, he's injured right now. He's obviously a really good shooter, but like can't stay on the floor for that long because of his defensive limitations. Like it, it just feels a little bit like not just running in place, but also maybe like they hamstrung themselves a little bit in the summer when they could have used that to take another step forward. And I'm not closing the door on that step forward happening in the future, but I think all of that stuff is amounting to this feeling kind of like a disappointing season when by all accounts, it should be a celebratory one because they validated more or less what they did last year. Um, So, yeah, I, again, I'm down to have like a more in-depth conversation about the Kings and how they've improved defensively and digging into some of the reasons that they've backslid offensively at a later date but we're pushing up against 90 minutes here, which, hey, Cash, with, with two weeks off, I think we're entitled to go a little bit longer because we're playing catch-up. And fortunately, we uh, didn't have to waste any airspace on all-star discourse. Because as you know, I skip the event every year, and I'm increasingly happy to do so, given what people are saying about the festivities, just getting themselves worked up into a froth about an exhibition game. I just can't be bothered, Cash. I can't and I
1: won't. I mean, you know who else can't be bothered? Uh, The players themselves that take part in the All-Star game. So um, I think that's a perfect way to cap this episode.
0: I think so too. So those are the most confusing teams in the league, some of whom have figured themselves out and are no longer confusing, some of whom still very much are. And I look forward to learning more about all of these teams in the back nine of the season. But for now, we're putting a bow on this. I, I'm so sorry that we're not going to get to a fan shout out again on this episode, but uh, we've just gone too long here. I promise that we will get back to those next week and we'll keep them rolling through the end of the season. So until then, we're signing off for Joseph Cacharo. I'm Joe Wolf on Pound the Rock.